seems to go down? Or do I go off in this little path that snakes in under the trees and goes I don't know where? Long of the story is the man takes the path less traveled and it changes his life. That, of course, was taken from Jesus' parable of the two ways. You know, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. So I've called this choosing the path less taken. Amber, we have been to Jerusalem. We have been to the Holy of Holies. We have sacrificed with the songs of ascent. Now we're going back and we're pondering the question, what are we supposed to be? How should we live our lives? Larry makes a beautiful point. How do I go about the business of being a Christian? And it's all going to start in Matthew 5, 21. If you are going to choose a path, you have three things to deal with along the path. Three obstacles, if you will. The first one is this. You must deal with yourself. Do you know that you are your own worst enemy, church? Anybody know that? You are your own worst enemy. Who can stop you from serving God? The devil? Angry mobs? Your wife or your husband? Job pressures? Can any of those things stop you from serving Jesus Christ? No. Who can stop you from serving Christ? You. You are the only one that can stop you from serving Christ. Take a look at this today. Dealing with yourself. You have heard it was said to, uh, of our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, now notice that, you have heard it said, but I tell you, Jesus is going to do some altering here. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. And um, whoever says to his brother, oh, will be subject to Sanhedrin, but whoever says you moron will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him or your adversary will hand you over to the judge the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Ah, now what does this have to do with yourself? This sounds like you're dealing with some kind of legal case or you're dealing with some kind of legal argument. The passage we have today is couched in legal terms. When Jesus taught this, he taught this because in the day in which Christ lived, The law of Moses forbid Jew from suing Jew. It was not supposed to happen. You could sue a Gentile because they were not of the people of God, but you couldn't drag a brother to court, or at least you were not supposed to. So in Jesus' day, he recognized that people were out for themselves. They were out for what they could get. And even if the law of Moses got in the way, they would say, yes, it says it in the Bible, but guys, When it comes to that phrase, it says it in the Bible, but never say the word but, otherwise you become what you say. Get it? Okay. Never say the word but when it comes to the word of God, because God's word is absolute. God's word makes no exceptions. God's word has no go-arounds. 
So therefore, never say the word of God says, but there is no exception. That's why Jesus is so harsh with them. Look at what he says. You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. Everybody took that literally. Don't take another person's life or it's wrong. Now, there are two words in Hebrew. One is the word to kill. One is the word to murder. To kill is used of anything done in warfare. All you ex-soldiers should know this. When a soldier takes someone's life in a war, it is not murder, it is killing, and killing is permissible in the service of the state or the country, according to the Old Testament. That's not my opinion, it's God's look it up. Murder is to take a man's life for no reason. Even thieves are protected under this law. The law of Moses says this, if a man goes into your house in the daytime and steals from you, you may not kill him. Understand, if a man goes into your house in the daytime to steal food to eat, you may not kill him. However, the law of Moses said if a man breaks into your house in the midnight, he comes to kill and to wound, therefore his life is forfeit. The law of Moses was very specific in how it dealt with the taking of a human life because blood defiles the land. That is why if they're going to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, they first must find a red heifer. Then they must take the red heifer and they must burn it using the ashes with water to purify the land because thousands upon thousands of Jews were killed in the Temple Mount, died in the temple. So that land is defiled. You cannot build a holy place on it. The Jews took this very seriously. So the law says don't murder. So everybody says what? I'm not a bad person. I've never murdered anybody. But Jesus says, no, there's more to it than that. Remember we talked about the Pharisees? The Pharisees were very particular with the law, 613 some laws. Remember what the last verse we read last week was? Matthew 5.20. Your standards of behavior must exceed those of the Pharisees and scribes. Jesus said just before this, keeping the letter of the law isn't good enough. You have to exceed the letter of the law and go to the spirit of the law. You see, you cannot kill a man unless you're angry with him. So if anger is in your heart, you're already guilty of murder because that is where murder begins. Murder begins with anger, anger in the heart. Remember, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man or woman. It's what comes out. Why? Because what comes out of your mouth is birthed in your heart. Now take that back, people. That's everything from snide comments to gossip to backstabbing to, gee, the pastor's looking fatter than usual today. I forgive you for that one, by the way. It's okay. I'll let that one slide. Not true, but I forgive it anyways. Okay, here we go. So the whole thing is he wants them to look deeper than the letter of the law. Look to the spirit of the law. Look to what's going on in your own heart. That's why I said this battle is with yourself, with what you allow into you. <coughs> he says if you say to your brother that you're a fool, you'll be subject to the Sanhedrin. If you say moron, I think your, your translation may say raka, it means you'd be subject to hellfire. Now, these were not simple terms. If I call you an idiot, that's not a bad thing. 
Because you see, these words had deeper implications than just the words. Like many languages that I've studied, words have deeper meanings than just meanings. There's a few words I used to utter here in complete ignorance that I did not know offended everybody. Because in English, it's a fine word. Eh, yeah, in Tagalog, not so good. But that's because you take the word and you put your own culture into it. And that's why the word becomes bad. That's how this was. To call somebody a fool, that was a tremendous insult to a man's integrity and dignity. To call him a moron or raka meant he was worthless, useless. It was to completely degrade the man in the presence of everybody there. And that was a great sin in the day in which we're looking at. In the day of Jesus, what you said was what you felt, and what you felt you were responsible for. He says, so if you're at the church and you're about to take the Lord's Supper and you're going to give your offering to the church and you're going to sacrifice, and there you know somebody's ticked off at you, go get straight first. You know, used to in church, they used to have what they call settling up time. Anybody remember settling up time? Okay, settling up time is this. The, Lord, the pastor would say, now we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here. But some of you need to do some settling up. Some of you husbands, you yelled at your wife this morning. Shame on you. Go apologize. Ladies, some of you screamed at your children. You need to go apologize. And they would take 10 minutes out of the service for everybody to go apologize to whoever they were screaming and yelling at that day. Why? Because it's important that your heart be right before you come and celebrate the goodness of the Lord. It's important that those things not have power over us. That's why the Word of God says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you let the sun go down on your anger, it says a bitter root, that's the Old Testament talk, a bitter root will develop in you, and the deeper it goes, the deeper it poisons the soul and the mind of the person in whom it is. So there always used to be settling up time, and they would just... The pastor would just go over and pray, and then people would walk around and say, you know, I screamed at you this morning because you took my parking spot. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And they would hug and cry and all that good stuff. And when the settling up was done, then they had the Lord's Supper. Then they had the Lord's Supper. Now, these days we don't do that. These days we, we trust that you're going to settle up afterwards. We trust that afterwards you're going to be so convicted by what you just did that you're going to go, you know what, I, I, I'm so sorry. I put that knife in your tire because you were parked in my spot. and I apologize. I'll buy you a new tire. I didn't do that, by the way. I'm just it's an example. But that's important. It's important that we keep ourselves right with the Lord by being right with each other. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Now, notice this. He says you better settle up before you get to the officer of the court. Now, this is legal terms, but think about the reality of it. When you are mad at somebody, who are you hurting? You. You know why? Because nine times out of nine, the other person don't care. I'm being honest, people. When you carry a grudge, the only person you're taking off is yourself. The only one that's going to get an ulcer is you. Because the other person either doesn't know or can't do anything about it, and they let it go. I find out that this verse right here is to set you free from all that pain. Because here's the thing. If I do everything I can to settle up with people, 
and they don't settle up, it ain't my fault, and I don't have to lose sleep over it. And that's the truth of it, people. If Marilyn and I get into a knockdown, drag out fight, she's throwing knives at me, and they're sticking in the wall at my head. Before I go to bed, I will grovel and apologize. A, I want to be able to sleep at night peacefully because I've done the right thing. And B, I don't want to cut my throat in my sleep. Every married man should say something. Yeah, that's what I said. Chris said, amen. Yeah, I know. It's true. It's true. This says you will not get out till you paid every penny. What does that mean? Until you make peace, you will have no peace. You will be in a prison of your own making. You will be in a misery that you are totally responsible for. Why would we do that to ourselves? This is the hardest lesson to learn in the Christian life. You either cut it loose or it eats you up. I knew a guy once hooked a shark in Texas. Now, that's against the law, by the way. You can't do that. If you're on a fishing boat and you hook a shark and you get it to the edge, they will cut your line. They will, they will not even let you pull it in the boat. I've had my line cut so many times. It's ridiculous. You know why they won't pull it on the boat? You can smack a shark on the head, and it will lay there, and as soon as you go to grab it, it will wake up and bite you. Do not keep a shark in the boat with you if you want to keep all your digits. <laughs> Here's the thing. Don't keep the shark of anger in you, or it will eat your digits. It will take your peace. It will mess you up. And the only one that can set you free is you. You are the only one that can free yourself from the misery because you're the only one keeping it inside. That's the truth. I've learned this lesson more than a few times, and I'm still learning this lesson. This is one that takes a lifetime to master, people. It takes a lifetime to master this one. <clears throat> but go on. Choosing this unusual path. Choosing, I'm going to say something here. Choosing this alternate lifestyle. Because actually, if you think about it, being homosexual, that's old hat. They had that back in Sodom and Gomorrah. Being a born-again believer, that's an alternative lifestyle that's alternative to the whole world. We have the true alternative lifestyle. We choose the path that no one goes down, following Christ. Second one is dealing with covenants. Y'all know what a covenant is, right? When you join the church, you, you make a covenant with the church that you're going to serve them and they're going to serve you. That's what David just did. You make a covenant. When you get married... You don't have a marriage contract. You have a marriage covenant. It's an agreement between you, the other person, and God Almighty as to how you're going to conduct this relationship. Look what it says. You have heard that it was said. There we go again. You've heard that it was said. Do not commit adultery. But I tell you, Jesus is just trying to hurt us today. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman <coughs> or man, for some of you ladies looks at a woman or a man to lust after her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I'm going to stop right there. We need, to, we need to work on this first just a little bit. What does it mean to lust? Okay, this is the simplest way to put it. It's not biblically the, the most accurate, but it would take me a week to explain the biblical implications of this. Okay, simple. Guys, first look, you get a free pass. Second look, you're in trouble. And that third look, if your wife don't get you, God will. The word lust literally means to allow a desire to take hold of your thoughts and emotions so that you are motivated to act on them. 
pretty young girl comes to work in your office. She's wearing a very short skirt and a very low blouse and nothing in the middle. You say to yourself, self, I'm in trouble. And your, your other self says, yes, I am. So you look at her coming in the door and go, okay, that's a pass. You're good on that one. It's when you keep looking up. One of those things, that's where you're in trouble. Why? Why is that a problem? Is it really so bad to look at a pretty woman? Yes. You know why? Because the more you look, the deeper the impression goes into your brain. Ladies, don't pretend you don't do this. Okay? Please, ladies, please pretend that you don't look at every really muscular, strong, handsome guy in tight jeans and a little tight T-shirt with his tattoos poked. Pretend that you don't see that. Just go ahead and tell me to my face you don't see it because I know you do. Because I hear you talking. Mm, I hear things. Anyways, here's the thing. Why is it so wrong to look? Because it stays in your head. It's been so hard to explain to my wife. Men are visual. Draw me a picture of something. Like, you know the little instructions that don't have words, they just have pictures? Those were done for men. Because men can't read. But we can follow pictures. No problem. Do this, this, and this. And it works. It works. Here's the thing, for a guy, whatever you see, you can't get rid of it. It stays in your brain. And the more you look, the deeper it goes. It's the truth. Ladies, same thing. You think, oh, I'm just looking, I'm just admiring. No, you're not. You're storing up something in your head that is stirring up emotions that you're going to think about later on. I heard it put this way once. This guy was preaching, and his, uh, his wife was with him at the, uh, at the uh, event. And he says, guys, I-, I know that the movie Top Gun is a great movie. And everybody goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know how I know it's a great movie? Yeah, yeah. My wife has worn out the VHS in that one scene in the middle that's all blue and people are kissing. He was making a statement. When you watch the same clip again and again and again, you've got a problem. Because you're pushing that image deeper into your head. It's an image you don't need. You may think you're not affected, but I guarantee you are affected. The word lust is literally to have an inordinate desire for something. Okay? That's what it means. So it says right here, adultery. Okay? No adulterers in this place. We're We're all good, clean, living people, right? Just say amen and make me feel better. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> so, staying physically faithful to your spouse is easy. Amen? Because you know if you cheat, she's going to kill you. So it's very, very easy to be motivated by fear to stay faithful. But what happens between your ears? What happens in your mind? What you look at on your computer screen at work? I mean, is there a reason why every guy I know erases the history on, on his searches on YouTube? Why does everybody erase the history? I'll tell you why they erase the history. I'll tell you that later, though. Think about this. Internet pornography is the number one problem in this country that is destroying marriages. Why? Because guys and women don't take it seriously. We don't think it affects things, but it does. Everything you stick in your head affects you, and it affects your covenant with your wife. If we wanted to be serious, 
Somebody once put it to me this way. They said, Pastor, if my husband spends 20 hours a week looking at pornography on the internet, is that adultery? Me being me, I said, yes. It's emotional adultery. And another lady actually did ask me, my husband has been texting things to a young lady in the office. And I went, oh, dear Jesus. I knew it was coming. Is this, is this adultery? I said, yes, this is an emotional affair. This is an emotional affair because he is getting from her what she can't get from him. And ladies, look at your spouse. I'm sorry you married him. It's your fault. Whatever you got is what you got. Right? And you make the best of what you got. Gentlemen, you should say something right here. Nope. Okay. I'm being honest. Here's the thing. What we allow to happen in our heads will affect our marriage, will affect our children, will affect our church. Because it tears down the connection in our families, in our marriages, in our relationships. And that's what he's talking about. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. I got a better one for you. If TV makes you sin, turn it off. If the internet leads you to sin, cancel your connection. If, if, if there's something else that, that, that's leading you astray, leading you away from Christ, maybe it's the music you listen to, maybe it's the videos you watch on YouTube, stop it. Cut them out of your life. Would you rather be whole and healthy without the internet, without YouTube, without all the, or, or would you rather be having them and be emotionally sick and mentally sick and diseased and unhappy? That's the truth of it. Just because a guy isn't sleeping around doesn't mean he's not sleeping around in his head. Ladies, you too. Believe me, after I found out one thing after all these years in ministry, most of the time, women cheat just as much, if not a little bit more, than men. Women are getting brazen today, which means what? Which means husbands and wives have to communicate about this stuff. We have to talk about this stuff. We have to value the covenant that we have with our spouse so much that we're willing to get rid of whatever is dragging us away. One of the hardest problems for my wife was when we got married, everybody else we knew was single. That's a very lonely time for a woman when you are married and they are single and they can go do things and you can't. And don't lie to yourself and say, I'm just going to go hang out with the girls. No, you're not. Because if you're taking time away from your covenant relationship, you are ignoring it. That's the thing about Jesus. He won't let us get by with just the words. He makes us go to the very spirit of what he's talking about. And that is this covenant that we're in. You see, the scripture says that Moses allowed the people of Israel to divorce their wives, not because it was God's will. But it says, Moses allowed this out of the hardness of your hearts. You had so hardened yourselves against commitment, against hard work, that you were willing to just throw it all away. The wife would get a little bit older. He would say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Get away from me. Start all over again. If you're from the Philippines, this is very familiar to you. There is no divorce in the Philippines. It's illegal. So what does a man do? He abandons his wife and starts all over again. 
Don't tell me it doesn't happen. I know it happens. And I know what it does to the family he leaves behind. Okay? That's the reality of the world that we live in. Whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. Actually, it was just, by Jesus' day, it was just, say, I divorce you three times. And you're cast aside. No alimony, no palimony, no nothing. Just cut off. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and then every man that marries her is also guilty of adultery. Let me ask you a question. What is the impardonable sin, according to Scripture? The one sin that can't be forgiven, what is it? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit by denying who Christ is. Is divorce an impardonable sin? No. If you made the mistake of getting divorced at a younger age, can God still use you? Yes. Contrary to what some churches teach, you ain't going to hell just because you're divorced. There is forgiveness and grace and restoration. It is wrong. It is absolutely wrong, and we can never call it right for any circumstance. But there is restoration after the mistake. Amen? That's what we started with. There is nothing that we can do to each other, nothing that is so terrible that it cannot be forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Christ. But we have to deal with it, not cover it up, not make it seem to go away, not, not, not claim innocence, not pretend it's somebody else's fault. Take responsibility and deal with the issue. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. That's why it's the most popular sermons ever preached. Because it hits us all where we live. Even if you've never divorced your spouse, never been in an adulterous relationship, if you have abandoned, ladies, listen to me, men, listen to me. If you have emotionally abandoned your spouse and chosen anybody or anything else, you are adulterers. You want me to say it again? If you have emotionally abandoned your spouse, you are an adulterer, and you need to deal with that before God. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and died to save her. Gentlemen, you better love on that wife you've got. That's a gift from God. If you don't, shame on you. Shame on you. Ladies, you better get up under your husband's protection. Without it, you're nothing but an adulterer running the streets. And God will make you deal with that before you get straight with him. Amen? Okay, this is hard stuff, but Jesus was hard on them. He took the law they were used to, and he went above and beyond the call of duty. He made it tougher than it ever was because it covers what happens inside us. Finishing up, Matthew 5, 33 through 48 Dealing with your community. <coughs> this one is simple. We deal with it every day. Again, you have heard it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it is God's throne, or by the earth because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black 
I'm going to add a verse, and you can't make a single hair come back once it falls. But let your word yes be yes, and let your no be no. Anything more than this comes from evil, from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist the evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Wow. Talk about stuff that is un-American. This is anti-American stuff, and I'm so glad it's in the Word of God. I wish Americans could just deal with this, and we would have to fire 90% of the lawyers that work in the world. We just wouldn't have any needs for them more if we could get over the stuff of suing people. You must not break your oath. This is how bad it was back in the day. When you wanted to promise somebody something, people didn't trust each other. They would say, David, do you swear? And you say, I, I, I cross my heart and hope to die. I swear by my children's graves. Your children aren't even dead yet. People would swear by the most ridiculous, they would swear by the temple dome. They would swear by the gold on the temple dome. They would swear by these extravagant things that they neither owned nor had control of. And it was said by the ancient writers, when a man swore to you he would do something by anything, you knew he was a liar. Because if a man had integrity, he would say, I make a contract with you to do this work. I will be there. I will do the job. In this country, it used to be that you could shake a man's hand. Chris, I promise I'll be there at 10 o'clock. I'll get the job done. And you know what? Chris didn't say, swear, because he knew me. He knew if I said I'll be there, I'll be there. That's integrity. You don't have to swear by extravagant things. You should be known for your integrity. And that's living in a community where you're known for who you are. Also, it says that your yes be yes, your no be no. Anything else just comes from the evil one. You're trying to manipulate people. Now, it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But he says, no, don't seek revenge. Remember, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. God will get even with whoever wrongs you. Trust me. Don't worry about it. Moving on. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. In the ancient world, you punched a man, you slapped a woman. I'm sorry, that's how the world was. You punched a man, you slapped a woman. Or you slapped a child in the butt, whichever one. Here's the thing. If one man slaps another man's face, whack! I'm not attacking him. I'm insulting him. I'm saying, you're a woman. You're not even worthy of a punch. That's an insult. Jesus said, if somebody insults you, suck it up. Take the insult. Now, that's not so easy all the time. But that's what he says is the ideal. The ideal is if somebody insults you, take it. And turn to him the chance to do it again. I heard, I heard a Texas pastor once. He said, I believe in the word of God. It says, if you slap me once, I'm going to turn you the other cheek. But I tell you something. You slap me again, and I'll knock you into next week. I like that preacher. I like him a lot. He wouldn't do it. He was a real nice guy. But he was trying to make a point. Don't push it. Don't push it. You know, it says if the world says you Christians are weak, take it. If the world says you, you Christians don't believe in profit or money or gain, take it. If, if, 
If you're a single man, David, and, and some girl hits on you and says, you need to do this and this to prove you're a man, you say, no, I don't have to do that. And she says, well, then you're a wimp. You say, great, I'm a wimp for Jesus. Get out of my face. That's how you handle the insults of the world. You let it go. You move on. See, this is not about being attacked. Remember at the end, when the disciples were going to flee, Jesus says, who's got a sword? Peter says, I got one. He says, that's good. When you traveled the ancient world, there were those who came to insult you and those who came to kill you. Remember the uh, guy breaking in your house? If he breaks in the daytime, he's only stealing food. Let him go because he's hungry and he needs to feed his family. If a man steals from you to feed his family, that's nothing. That's not worth killing a man over. But if a man breaks in your house at night, he's come to hurt you, he's come to hurt your wife, hurt your children. In that case, kill him. Not my words, God's words, Old Testament. Look it up. I've always said, there's only one thing I fight for, life and death. And that's what God's given me. And I think everything else is, everything else is negotiable. So that's how it runs. But look at this. Look at what this says about the community. We're honest with each other. We tell each other the truth. We don't go around behind someone's back. We just deal with them. We get right up in their face and we, we tell them what's what. And this says that if I tell you yes, the answer is yes, and I don't got to swear or nothing. Because you know in integrity, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to tell you one thing and go, then go do something else. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you right to your face what I think of you. And that's the way it should be. And I'm not going to seek revenge. You hurt me, so I go out and hurt you back? How ridiculous. What are we all, five-year-olds? Seriously, people? Five-year-olds get revenge. Grown people don't do that. If anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other one. Suck it up. Now, there's a time and a place when you can be done sucking. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? There's a time and a place to stop pushing your good luck. Push a man far enough, he's going to get what you get. But for the one who wants to sue you, give it to him anyways. It used to be that a Roman officer could come to you and say, you, Judean, come here. Take these bags and carry them one league over the hills. You as a Roman slave, well, you were not a citizen, but you were a member of the empire. You had to carry it one league. That's all they could legally force you to carry it. But this says if you have the chance, go two leagues. And preach Jesus the whole way till you annoy the man to death. Happens. I used to pick up hitchhikers back in the days when you could still do that. By the way, nobody pick up hitchhikers. It's not safe anymore. I used to pick up hitchhikers and drive them into Houston. You know why? You know why I love hitchhikers? I had 45 minutes to preach Jesus and they couldn't get out of the car. It's a wonderful experience. Where are they going to go? You're giving them a ride, right? You get to preach Jesus at them. Think about our lives today, church. Think about who we are. Where are we at on this path? Where are we at on this path to becoming the people God wants us to be? I want us to consider this before we consider this. Take a look at it. Where are you on the path? Are you confronting the heart issues which are hidden from others but exposed to God? We all have heart issues. We all have things we deal with. We all have problems to overcome. We all have emotional stuff going on. It's that dealing with yourself. Remember, you can't hide nothing from God. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what's going on inside you. Nobody else can see it, 
Nobody else pretty much cares about it. But God cares that you deal honestly with him about you so that you can be healthy, you can be well, you can be happy, you can be joyful. Because if you deal with your own heart issues, everybody else will get there too. But you have to heal you before you can heal anybody else. Keep going. Don't quit letting God work on your internal issues. Second, is, is it relationship issues that challenge you? Maybe you were back here with dealing with this covenant. You're in a covenant relationship if you are married. You are in a covenant relationship that is your primary relationship. That is the most important thing in your life. I heard a doctor say it two weeks ago. He said, the most important relationship in your life is your spouse, not your children. Children are like the IRS. They come and take up your money, and then one day they go away. Okay? So children are wonderful. They come, they stay, they consume your livelihood, and then they go away. But your spouse remains to the rapture. Amen? Amen? So the thing is, that's the most important issue. But also, too, we're all in a covenant with each other. We are in a covenant with each other. You know, and how we do church, how we come together as groups to provide food, or how we do Bible studies together, or how we do outreaches together. You know, we got a couple praying about taking over SIT, and they're going to pray about it. And if as a couple, they decide that they want to take over SIT next year, fantastic. Then we have leadership. But you know what? If as a couple, they can't agree, then they can't do it. Because they have to have their relationship to the place where they both agree this is a good thing to do. Young couples, I'm telling you, very important. Learn to be on the same page with what you do. Learn to be on the exact same page, especially when it comes to ministry and church life. Because you can't fight the world and fight your spouse. It's a losing battle. You will lose every time. And gentlemen, never say the following thing. Never, if you wish to live a long, peaceful life. Never say the following, I am the man, do what I tell you. Please don't say that, because I'm going to have to come to your house and take a butcher knife out of your chest. Because sooner or later, sooner or later, it's not going to work, okay? Be a pe- if you are a single person, God bless you, you don't have to deal with that one. But there you go. But you do have to deal with the rest of us, so you're still in a community. Last one, do you feel like you can't go the extra mile anymore? Do you feel like... The, the, the Romans have grabbed you and forced you to go this, this journey of serving things. And you feel like you, you're done in. You can't go anymore. You can't give the extra mile. Only God can give you the strength. Only God can teach us to forgive. Only God can teach us to love. Only God can teach us to get over, get over ourselves and get on with the work of the church. That's the truth. If there's anything that we're going to learn from this Journey through the Sermon on the Mount, this is seminal. This says you have to be who you are in relationship with Christ before you can do anything else. you got to be in a relationship before you can do anything else. Amen? Amen? Let's pray and then we'll move on to the Lord's Supper. Father God, thank you. Lord, thank you for these teachings. <coughs> Father, again and again, your son said, it was said to our ancestors, but I say go further. Father, it's not enough for us to not murder. We have to learn to conquer anger and and all the emotions that go with that. Father, we have to learn to be humble and accept responsibility for our actions, and we have to be able to go further than that 
and we have to be able to forgive those who've slapped us on both sides of the cheek and when they should have just stopped at the first one. But Lord, I thank you also that you've taught us to deal with the covenants of life. Father, for those here who are married, I pray you will bring them together over the covenant of marriage, the covenant that is made solid by you. Father, for those who are single, I pray that they will rejoice that they have a covenant with you, that they are in a relationship with you, that they can be subservient to you. And that, Father, for those who are, are waiting or who are dating and, and are not quite there yet, Father, help them to consider carefully. Consider carefully who this person is and what this relationship will look like and where, it was, where it's going to go. Father, and I pray most of all for this community of believers, for GGCF. Father, I pray that we can learn to love and appreciate each other, that we can learn to enjoy each other and to celebrate, Father, not just the people who can sing and the people who can play instruments, but Father, we can appreciate those who teach, those who lead our children, those who provide food, those who provide smiles and warm hugs. God, help us to love our children. Our children are the greatest gift that you have given to us. After, after, the, after your son and our spouses. God, I just pray that we would learn to love our children and lead them. Father, to guide them by setting the example for who we should be and how we should behave. <coughs> Fathers, we come to the Lord's Supper. Father, we look back and we look at that night that Jesus was betrayed. Father, he was going to be betrayed and he sat right by his betrayer. But Lord, the only thing only thing in Jesus' heart was pain and compassion. Father, I, I know that Jesus would have wished to save Judas, but there was no way to save him, no way to turn him back from the course that greed and jealousy and anger had taken. Father, as we come to this, help us to seek out in our hearts, Father, those things which are unpleasing to you. Father, help us to seek out those attitudes and actions for which we need to ask forgiveness. And Father, as this day goes forward, and as we eat and fellowship later, help us to take time to make a phone call to somebody that we need to call or to speak to someone we need to speak to and, and, and to clean our hearts from anything that may have built up this week and even this morning on the way to church. Father, help us to put all that aside so that we can truly remember your sacrifice 2,000 years ago as you broke the bread and gave the wine to your disciples. And that way we do it again today in Jesus' name. Amen. So as they come forward this morning, you know, Paul says on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. So often we see the bread as a hard little piece of wafer. But in Jesus' day, it was large, and it was soft. And as it was torn, you could hear the bread being torn. You could hear the sound of it separating, in much the same way that the Roman standing at the foot of the cross heard the skin of Jesus give way to the sword as it pierced inside his heart. And as we look at the, the light reflecting on the, on the juice, the same thing happened before the cross. The Roman probably had to step back as the blood and the water flowed down and huddled up at the foot of the cross. They probably looked into it and looked up into the eyes of Jesus. 
later said, surely this was the Son of God. If you're here today and you are a born-again believer, you've been baptized, you have committed yourself to Him, I don't care whether you're, you know, from a Presbyterian church, Methodist church, whatever, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you know that you're born again, I invite you to take part with us today in this celebration.
As we looked at the scriptures today, it talks about a brokenness in all of us. Whether it's the, the brokenness related to anger, the brokenness related to covenants, brokenness related to honesty, integrity, etc. There's always a brokenness in us. And when Jesus broke that bread, he was saying, this is my body broken, but it's also your body healed. Your body made well because of my brokenness. So I give you the body of Christ. In the first century, Romans were terrified of Christians because they believed we were vampires, that we would drink blood at our church services. But in a sense, I guess we do drink blood. I guess like all people who are anemic and sick, what we need sometimes is a real transfusion, a transfusion of healthy blood. And the only blood that could heal us of what was wrong with us was the blood of Christ. So my friends, I give you the blood of Christ. If you'll hand those